I'm Christian Chiller. Welcome to my podcast, an enthusiastic ramble through whatever has taken my interest the past week or so. Expect technology, games, history, travel, geekery, and as always, much, much more. Welcome everybody, welcome to the second, the third, I, I think I've lost track already, Chinchilla Squeaks of 2022. I did not do one last week, as you might have noticed or not, which means I have quite a lot I want to go through this week. So I reckon I will stop blathering and we just get started. I'm going to begin with an article from Patrick Howell O'Neill on the Technology Review. So you will have to get through your free, three, three, free, free, three articles um, of the month or um, pay for it. Uh, this is about, I mean, the, one of the big news stories at the moment, the Russian-Ukrainian conflict, I suppose, the new one. Um, but this is specifically around the cyber war aspect of it. Obviously, soldiers and tanks and machinery are a wonderful uh, visual reminder of strength and uh, can really obviously instill fear and concern and, and stress in, in, in the various sides. But we all know that a lot of wars these days are actually happening on, in cyberspace, which sounds incredibly outdated way of putting it, but I think you get my point. And this is an article that specifically goes into some of the history and the kind of of that cyber war that Russia has had with Ukraine. But this article then goes into a bit more detail about talking about how that is spreading and has spread from Ukraine into Europe and to the rest of the world, but specifically Europe at the moment. A lot of this research was actually discovered by Microsoft, strangely, um, and obviously Russia has not admitted it, but um, I think there's a lot of uh, assumption slash evidence slash feeling that they are. And this actually came to a head on January 18th from a US agency warned about critical infrastructure operators to take urgent near-term steps against these threats, citing the recent attacks against Ukraine. And this is actually something that was has almost been forgotten about in the discussion around um, the, the, the recent physical war in that actually there have been attacks on Ukraine's infrastructure that were extremely successful and damaging also in the past few months. Uh, and they strangely don't make as much news but have had of more immediate impact on people's lives, I suppose. And of course, the issue with cyber war is it knows no borders. Um, when troops cross over a national border, it's generally noticed and generally people react to it. A cyber war kind of appears out of nowhere, does its thing, vanishes back into nowhere and is very hard to trace. And in some respects, it can have far more impact, especially on uh, the core of a nation as opposed to its its military and things like that. So it's, it's And Russia is a very old hand at it, <laughs> shall we say. So this article goes into a lot of the, the various attacks that have happened over the past. So Whispergate, NotPetya, um, over the past few years. And uh, I found it quite interesting just to get a reminder of really what conflict is probably going to look like from now on, shall we say. Going from that 
at a complete tangent. <laughs> this was an article from the next web. From um, actually, it just says from the conversation. So it must be aggregated, but uh, I came across it on the next web. And this is actually something I think I have covered before. And I used to know someone in um, Melbourne, actually, who had a similar principles. Anyway, the title, Contrary to Popular Belief, Middle-Age Entrepreneurs Do Best. And there's this always this assumption that the most successful startups are started by young people. And of course, they are young at some point. Everybody is. And then maybe they start young. But actually, a lot of the average age for most, most successful entrepreneurial ventures outside of some kind of high-profile outliers, the average age is actually is actually 41. <laughs> and apparently this somewhat relates to kind of a time in many people's lives where maybe they're starting to think about their legacy, uh, what they've done and what they want to do next and what they want to be remembered for. And you've gained enough experience and credibility and credentials to do something different, but you're not too old that... You know, you're, you, if, it, if you make a mistake, you can go back to something else, that, that kind of thing. Um, so it's also an interesting age, especially as I am approaching 41 myself in a few months. It's, it's kind of a, hmm. <laughs> something to, to ponder on. So I guess the, the interesting question might be is why then do we have such this, 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 um, romance this this misassumption that everyone's always young and actually the article opens with bill gates was 21 paul allen was 21 for microsoft steve jobs was 22 steve wozniak was 22 mark mark zuckerberg was at harvard at the time so about the same age um so i guess we tend to think of these very big examples but i'm sure there's plenty of others as well how old was jeff bezos actually no he would have been young as well because amazon's been around for some time so is it that the kind of middling well-known successful companies are generally founded by older people and it's only younger people who start these big successes? I don't know. This article doesn't go into depth on trying to break apart those numbers into that kind of level of detail, but it'd be, be interesting to know. Um, so I guess the takeaway is you're never too old to be a successful founder, but are you too old to be a mega successful founder? I don't know. <laughs> I guess I guess the proof is in the numbers, if I could find them. And if anyone knows has access to them or knows them, then uh, let me know. You can always find my contact details at chrisinchiller.com. Sort of related, getting a little bit local. Um, this is from Sifted by Miriam Partington in, in Berlin. This is actually a local company, relates to a local company. In fact, where I'm currently recording from, they have an office about four doors away. This relates to a bank here, N26, a kind of startup bank. Um, has expanded into other regions, and this article covers some of that. But uh, this actually relates to what is behind the N26 employee exodus. And I find this interesting because I think I also covered in the past the staff issues with uh, companies like the 15-minute delivery companies here, like Grillers and, and, and many others, actually. And it's interesting because 
Germany culturally as a country, and obviously a lot of these companies have expanded into other territories, but that's that's where their base is in these cases, um, has a very strong work culture, or no, a workers' rights culture. Uh, there's often this body like a work council, which is a body to represent workers. That, um, But you, you have to kind of actually um, lobby management to let you do this, which is interesting. And N26 and Gorillas and others have always actually denied their right to do this. And I find this interesting because I feel like some German founders are almost saying that the workers' rights here um, get in the way of being a diverse, modern, dynamic company. It's kind of a subtext that I read. Obviously, I have no evidence or proof behind any of that. It's kind of a subtext I sometimes feel. And because it often, well, I guess because of the media I tend to read, you don't hear about old companies doing the same thing, but maybe they do. And I'm sure there's also plenty of new companies that don't block it, but especially these big ones, as they're trying to expand globally and hit problems, they seem to often uh, lash back at home. And N26 has had some problems. It expanded to the UK and pulled out. It blamed Brexit for that, which is probably fairly reasonable. It also expanded into the US with a very different model from within the European Union, and it backed out on that. And it's had quite a lot of staff turnover recently. It is a company that employs a lot of people. I'm uh, not sure if there's any numbers here, but they are a nine billion fintech, nine billion dollars, not nine billion people, of course. That would be impossible. Um, and they have a turnover of around forty percent, and the average in Berlin is twenty percent. And hypergrowth tends to have twenty-five percent, so still reasonably high. Um, but it is going through a lot of restructuring at the moment. So there, there could be some explanation for it, and the numbers have started to to flatten, um, but they have also had a lot of pressure. It's actually interesting because, uh, disclosure, I am a uh, stockholder in WISE, TransferWise as well, and they have also been feeling a lot of pressure. And both of them seem to be lying the blame squarely at Revolut, which I think is from the UK, which is currently valued at $33 billion. So it's kind of interesting they're both citing the same competitor as um, as detrimental to their growth. They have also been locked in uh, an argument with the financial regulator uh, over its lack of money laundering prevention, which is an interesting kind of odd niche issue. To Well, not a niche issue, but why that? You know, what, what about that um, gets in the way of, of their business model? I'm not sure. So, yeah. There's a lot kind of going on there, and I, I wonder I wonder if this transition from kind of hypergrowth startup to proper company in certain countries is, is harder than others. Uh, and there are interviews here with staff who also kind of say yeah, it's not as fun as it used to be. I think this is kind of almost expected in, um, in companies as they change and grow as well, and different sorts of company dynamics or suit different sorts of people, I guess. But I find it interesting and I, I was wondering kind of what's behind it and, and this story that keeps recurring within uh, Berlin startups and if that was a, a signifier of that they find that the existing frameworks don't suit them. Uh, what can we do about that? Yeah. All right. Um, getting a little bit more into very technical posts. This is something I came across on Dev.2 from Charlie, Charlie, Gerard, Gerard. I'm not quite sure. 
Uh, and I thought this was quite wonderful. It's going to be quite a small mention. But this was a post around building a UI, building a user interface in Figma, which is reasonable, with hand movements. And she used uh, TensorFlow and TensorFlow jo- uh, JavaScript to, like you see in science fiction, um, make gestures and create interfaces. I, I mean, practically speaking, it's not actually a comfortable thing to do, but still the fact that she did it and got it to work is, is quite wonderful. I uh, really love the inventiveness of just trying to get it to work. <laughs> and she details in this post how she did it. Um, amazing. Fantastic. Love it. This is a post from uh, Wired from Alex Miller. Um, it is the start of in February, I think, um, Black History Month. And this is an article that relates directly to that, um, the story of Jerry Lawson, the inventor of the game cartridge. Not a household name. And um, this article and a podcast episode that it references mention what what he did, what Jerry did. He created a lot of the technology behind um, the games cartridge that obviously was extremely popular in the 80s and 90s. I remember them well. Uh, and they kind of also formed sort of what was in arcade machines as well. And yet most people don't remember him. Most people remember his uh, white counterparts that kind of came um, a little later, I think. Uh, and he did this at Fairchild. Fairchild was actually a pretty revolutionary company that uh, created lots of things in this era. And um, he he sort of says that maybe there's also an, an aspect that maybe he came too early, I'm not sure. He also started his own company in the 80s as well to do the same sort of thing and then suffered from the computer game crash in 1984. And um, then Atari kind of took that over. And I mean, cartridges were popular for a period of time. But yeah, why do some people get forgotten about? Was it race? Was it that he worked for a company that was behind the scenes more than other companies? Hard to say, of course. But still, it's interesting. I always love to hear about these people that are very responsible for things we now know but get somewhat forgotten about. And uh, so, Jerry Lawson, we salute you. I had many hours of fun with your invention. Next, this is from The Atlantic by Ted. I do not know how to pronounce this surname. Gioia, G-I-O-I-A. Is old music killing new music? Relates mostly to the US, but I'm sure it's fairly accurate elsewhere. How now um, charts and algorithms that rule kind of music consumption these days how actually older music and they classify older music as it's a little unspecific but um the music database that uh, is behind a lot of streaming services classifies anything new as 18 months old which is actually pretty recent um, but then the article references a lot of sort of 70s to 90s music, and specifically 70s and 80s, and how um, it's surprising how many younger people are listening to The Police, um, <laughs> Creedence Clearwater Revival, and a whole bunch of others. And there's reasons why this might be. Some of them come from soundtracks, and some of them just float up through algorithms. And how this is actually having a negative knock-on effect to the new music industry in itself in that 
publicists, labels, band managers, and other professionals who work with kind of the latest, greatest. And I used to be in this industry myself. I, I remember this are struggling because they're struggling to get people to actually consume and listen to this new music that they're paid for. They're not paid to promote older music that kind of just promotes itself. Um, and it's actually causing the new music industry to shrink. It's kind of interesting because uh, older people have a tendency to complain about young people's music, ruining music. And actually the argument could be that it's, well, it's your music that's ruining new music because no one is listening to our music. So why bother kind of thing? Slightly sort of tangential way of looking at it. But um, I find it interesting. And this also relates to the Grammys um, has, I think, been postponed or even cancelled this year. And a decade ago, it had 40 million people watching. And now it had 8 million in 2021. So where is this decline coming from? I think it's just, it's. I think it's this interesting example of new consumption models clashing with old business models. And maybe we're still in this transition period where the way that we want, it could be all in the numbers, I guess is what I'm saying. And that something like the Grammys being shown as an example of dearth of new music but then the grammys is an old model so maybe it's the wrong thing to be comparing to i don't know it's a hard one to to say exactly but maybe that's something to to look at and think about but i I found it interesting um because then it also mentions after the grammys for example more people pay attention to streams of video games on twitch which now gets 30 million daily visitors than the grammys and this is where a lot of people are consuming music uh game music is is a big Thing that people consume in and outside of games as well so yeah i'd love to hear your thoughts on that i have some of my own you can as always find my contact details reach out to me on any platform you like at christianchiller.com and finally in the kind of other people's content this is one from actually last october which makes sense it's halloween but i am a subscriber to a service called movie which is a sort of irregular movie service and they are having a mini john carpenter season I like John Carpenter. They have three of his films. But there was a linked article with it, a notebook primer on John Carpenter. So if you don't know too much about him, this is a, a nice uh, article about his his history, his background, his kind of groupings of films, and then his retirement and also his music. He makes quite wonderful synth music in a lot of his films. So if you don't know who he is or you want to know a bit more, then have a read of that. I highly enjoyed it. Thoroughly enjoyed it. And now from me, I have quite a bit to share with you, actually. Uh, For Chronosphere, my employers, I wrote up a blog post of a talk I did with an associated video on reducing negative and biased language in documentation, looking at some tools that I use um, that can help you do that if you want to remove certain phrasing and words from, from documentation and content, like the tools you can use. You can find that. Um... What else in uh, tech? I have a video as well on my YouTube channel of creating an ex- a Visual Studio Code extension pack, um, just a way of bundling together different extensions into kind of one thing that people can install. Um, also on the tech side, I wrote an article for Knowledge Owl on tools for editing Docs' code. So if you're writing things like Markdown, Restructured Text, text ASCII Doc, etc., tools you can use to to edit that um, if you so wish 
And on the gaming side, I had two solo adventures in the past few weeks. I had um, creating hex maps with Hexkit. The name is is uh, very descriptive. If you want to make some old school looking kind of hex maps, it's a quite cheap tool that lets you do that. And as a playthrough, I did Masks, which is a quite wonderful interactive fiction game that drives you a bit crazy when you're trying to escape a uh, student protest and you're trying to escape with masks. <laughs> it wasn't written in the past two years. It was written a few years ago. And that drove me a bit mad, but it was very well written. And I really enjoyed that. So you can find all of those on my YouTube channel as well. Next week, I am going to have a something slightly different. I'm not going to have a links show. I'm actually going to have an interview and a demo. I've got to figure out how that's going to work on the audio side. So that might be split into two. So it'll also be on my YouTube channel with Kubernetes, a Kubernetes management platform. And we talk about uh, the why the product exists, what it does, and then, yeah, a little bit of a demo of, of it as well. So that will actually be on the feed next week and then back to links a couple of weeks after that. I hope you enjoyed the show. Find out more about me at chrischinchilla.com where you can find show notes, sign up for my newsletter, and find all of my writing, games, work, and video links. There's also details on how to get in touch with me. And if you want to get even closer to what I do, join my Discord server for behind-the-scenes discussions and helping me produce my shows and work.